You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Tom Standage, who is the deputy editor of The Economist and their resident futurist, if I can call you that, but also the author of a whole bunch of books. The most recent book is called A Brief History of Motion from the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next. And the other books are similar in format, right? You've got the writing on the wall, which is, I guess, a history of social media. We've got edible history of humanity, which is obvious what that's a history of. We've also got history of the world in six glasses, the Turk, the life and times of the famous 18th century chess playing machine, and the Victorian internet plus a couple of these other edited volumes. Welcome, Tom. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So look, a lot of these books, I mean, they follow a similar format. And I wanted maybe to get some insight into, first of all, why you use this format and then how you got so interested in history, right? Because I mean, you're a computer science engineering alum, and yet every single one of these books, right, tries to help us understand the past and potentially the future by doing a deep dive into the past. So where did you acquire your kind of curiosity about the origin stories, the history of these phenomena? Yeah, no, exactly. So essentially, these books tell the same joke over and over again, which is sort of, there's a thing that's new and exciting today, and everyone thinks it's never happened before. But here is a thing from the past that's actually just the same. And look, everyone reacted to it in just the same way, whether it's Romans on social media or Victorians on the internet or, you know, what people said about how cars were going to, when they replaced horse-drawn carriages, there was going to mean there was no more traffic and no more accidents and no more pollution, which sounds just like what people say about self-driving cars today. So yeah, it's the same, it's the same joke over and over again. And I suppose the, and I did this initially, the Victorian internet was my first book 25 years ago, so in 1998. And I think the logic to it is what I essentially tried to see the present in the past and the past in the present. And when you do that, I think the past becomes more relatable and the people in the past become more relatable if you can see that actually they react to, and it's generally to technologies, I treat food and drink essentially as technologies, in the same way, they become more understandable. But then at the same time, the fact that they react in the same way helps us understand ourselves and shows that human nature doesn't change and that technologies come and go, but we sort of are the same. But the other thing is, if that's true, and that's sort of invariant over time, then that also helps us look into the future. And really what's happening here is that I'm obsessed with what the future looks like. So yes, I edit our annual at The Economist, which is called The World Ahead, and it comes out every November, and it's our sort of best guesses as to what's going to happen in the coming year. And more generally, I think I try and work out what the future looks like in three ways. One of them is to look in the past, as I do with my books, and I do that with my author's hat on. Then as a journalist, I look in the present. So what we call edge cases. So things that are pieces of the future that are present in the world today. So the famous quote from William Gibson, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed is clearly true. And as a technology journalist, which is what I've spent most of my career doing, I go to places where you can see the future now, whether that's going to the cities that have self-driving cars in them, or whether I remember going to Tokyo in 2001 to see phones with color screens and cameras that you could download apps onto because they first appeared in Japan and South Korea. So you could see 
the future in those edge cases. So, so there are places you can look for it in the past. There's places you can look for it in the present. And then the other place I look for it is in the futures, the imagined futures of science fiction. So I read a lot of science fiction. And of course, science fiction is not really about the future. It's usually about the present. It's usually social commentary on what's happening now under the cover of futuristic stories, taking ideas to their logical conclusions and so on. So that essentially, all of those three things scratch the itch that I have of wanting to know what the future is going to look like. So that's really what joins them all together. It almost seems to imply that there is a science of social evolution, right? That there are these trends and processes in terms of how humans interact with technological change, which are constant over time. And I remember there was a conference, I think at the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago, where they surveyed all of these folks. The conference was on innovation and they asked everybody, what's the number one topic you need to study if you want to understand innovation? And I think that the modal answer was history, right? Which cheered me on because I'm an historian. I was trained as a historian. And, and I remember I used to teach a course called Financial History. Now I teach a course called FinTech. And they're pretty much the same course because for each thing, whether it was micro lending or payments, I'd always start off with how did they solve these problems in the past and how are we solving them in the present? And I guess. The, yeah, exactly. I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Is there sort of a, I don't know, a science of understanding how change happens and how humans respond to change? Does it make sense? So if, what would it be called if we had that? Well, exactly. Psychohistory, right? That's the Asimov foundation answer. So that you can turn history into a science. And this is what Paul Krugman says made him want to become an economist because he realized that economics is the closest thing we have to a sort of science of human behavior. And obviously it's very flawed. It doesn't work terribly well. But you know, I think nobody would say history is a science. And I also think that the old saying that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. I think you can get clues. And I probably go you know, far, further than most in that I use these historical analogies. And a lot of people say, well, that's problematic as well. History argument by analogy is not very rigorous and so on. But really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show, I'm really arguing against the, uh, the sort of, this has never happened before. This is going to change everything. And furthermore, it's changing. Uh, the, thing I, the thing that really annoys me that is sort of my motivation for doing this is that very often technology is blamed for the bad uses that people make of technology. So I remember when I was, you know, my career, when I started my career as a journalist and my ticket into journalism, because yes, I went to Oxford in the late 1980s to study computer science because I wanted to build AIs. I'd read all this sci-fi and I get to Oxford and discover, and I've been tinkering with language models and chatbots and stuff as a teenager, but they're rubbish and you've only got 32K of RAM on your computer. And, you know, so I'm thinking, right, I get to Oxford and they'll know how to do this and we'll have big computers. And actually they didn't know how to do it either. That was the depth of the AI winter, symbolic AI as a sort of approach had run into the sand and it was very disappointing. But one of the things I did learn to do at university was use the internet. And it turned out that there was no one in the media who really knew about it in, in Britain in the early 90s. And so I ended up working at The Guardian and then The Daily Telegraph and then The Economist. And the, you know, basically writing about the internet was my ticket into journalism. And I say that just because one of the kinds of stories that there was a lot of about in those days, the early days of the internet boom, was things like how the internet is causing more divorce or how the internet is you know, causing problem X and problem Y. And the reason I wrote the Victorian internet originally was that I wanted to show that things like cybercrime and online weddings and blaming communications technology for your wife running off with another man has been going on for as long as there has been communications technology. My favorite example of this, which is in the Victorian internet, is the first ever sort of cyber attack. It's the first attack on a on an information network. It happens in 1834, 
And it happens, it's even before electric telegraph. So it happens on the mechanical telegraph, the sort of semaphore telegraph that was that covered France. Napoleon was a big fan and he built this sort of national network and it was used for military communications. But some very enterprising brothers figured out a way to basically introduce a certain pattern of errors into military communications that allowed them to transmit sort of hidden within these errors information about how the government bond market was moving from Paris to Bordeaux. And that meant that they got the news the same day and everyone else in the Bordeaux exchange got it two days later. So they could then place their bets and, uh, accordingly. And this went on for two years and eventually they were caught because one of their accomplices got ill and tried to recruit someone else to take over their part of the scam and they blew the whistle and so forth. But there was then no law that these brothers could be charged under because it wasn't illegal to making illegal use of a government data network was not the kind of thing that people had laws against in 1834. But the point is, this is the very first data network in history. And it's also where you get the first cyber attack. And I think that tells you that human nature is what it is. I did similarly, I have lots of other examples of scams and online romances and online weddings and Human nature is what it is. And I like to say that technologies come and go, but they, they push the same old buttons in our Stone Age brains. And I don't think technology changes human nature. I think it acts as a sort of magnifier or amplifier, and it amplifies the good tendencies and the bad tendencies. And what tends to happen is that when it amplifies the bad tendencies, people say, oh, look, the technology has made us into worse people. And if we banned this technology, then we'd all go back to a sort of state of purity that we were in before. And I'm really trying to argue against that. And there are so many examples of these sort of moral panics. And it's not just technology. It's comic books will turn you into a drug dealer. Waltzing. There was a big concern about waltzing in the 1820s. It was going to cause women to become promiscuous. And so these sorts of stupid moral panics go back a very long way. And really what I'm trying to say is that people are people. And I think they've basically been the same since at least the Neolithic period. And the technologies come and go, and they have these very predictable outcomes. And I'm going to show you what they are. And then the idea is that next time, when we have a big moral panic in three or four years, that the children are doing these things in virtual reality, and it's all Mark Zuckerberg's fault or whatever, that we'll say, actually, we've seen this, we've seen this movie before. Well, there's definitely a panic that I've seen around the introduction of a smartphone and its impact, particularly on young people and their attention spans and so forth. And yeah, see, I think that's just not true, right? If it this is nonsense, right? Because who somebody is reading all those Game of Thrones books and is reading Harry Potter and is binge-watching entire series on Netflix. Young people do not have an attention span problem. It's just not true. I don't know. I just don't know where this comes from. What the smartphone allows you to do, which you couldn't do before, is if you had half a minute with nothing to do, like you're on an escalator or you're in a lift or you're in a queue or you're waiting for a bus and you've got two minutes, right? You can, you can now send a message or you can play a game or you can basically make use of that time that you couldn't make use of. And the way smartphones work is you can pause in the middle of anything. You can just stop and then you can restart again. And so, of course, people do a lot of things that take a short amount of time because there are a lot of you know things you can now do in a short amount of time when previously you couldn't have done. I mean, you could have like, opened a book and read, but nobody used to get a book out and read you know, one page on an escalator but because you've got this thing with you all the time. So it, it's expanded. It's allowed us to make use of those tiny moments of time that where we previously have not done anything. But that doesn't mean that all interaction on phones is very short. It doesn't mean that sort of stopped anyone. Just because Twitter exists doesn't mean people can't write essays anymore, contrary to what has been suggested. I just don't think that's true. And as I say, there are there is enormous appetite for... People complain when video games are only 30 hours long now because they want them to be 70 or 80. I haven't got time to play a 70 or 80 hour game. I liked it when video games only took 30 hours to complete. So there you go. I'm a terrible... I've got a short attention span, only 30 hours. 
But, you know, there's so much evidence that people will spend enormous amounts of time consuming media that they're really engaged with that I just don't buy this short attention span thing at all. Yeah, I'm uh, currently filming a online course. We introduced an online MBA, right, at Berkeley and filming the strategy course at the moment. And the course designers and the administrators have said, we really want to keep all of your videos to under three minutes because no one will pay attention if it's more than three minutes, right? I'm thinking, wait, these are the same people that are watching these HBO series, right, nonstop. They're sitting through three hours worth of Avatar. Yeah, yeah. And also, and podcasts. I mean, some podcasts are... Yeah. This podcast is an hour. But some podcasts are like, you know, there are several... Joe that Rogan are, is three hours long. Yeah, there are some <laughs> there were, that are two or three. And there's like, well, there you go. And people will listen to this. And it's, you know, it's hugely popular. So I just think there's so much evidence for... And films, Oppenheimer is like a hundred years long, isn't it? I think it's three hours or something. But those Marvel films, they all go on forever as well. So anyway, I just, uh, there is so much evidence to the contrary. And it's just the usual, the technology is corrupting the young people narrative, which we've heard for centuries. So uh, yeah, I don't buy it. Well, speaking of attention span, The Economist, in the years that you've been there, has seen tremendous growth. I was a subscriber to The Economist starting in 1980. And in the United States, I think there was like 10,000 subscribers, I think, are... Yeah, no, so that's the big that's the big shift that's happened since then, was that when, you know, until about, yeah, I think the late 70s, uh, certainly the early 80s, the majority of Economist subscribers were in Britain, and then there were some others around the world. And now, and I think this has been true since sometime in the 80s, the majority of our subscribers are in North America, so the US and Canada, and I think that's something like six, 700,000 out of the kind of 1.2 million or so. And then... 200,000 in Britain, and then about the same in continental Europe, I think, and then everyone else, everywhere else. But so I think part of the appeal of The Economist and the reason that we've sort of done well in recent years is that we have provided this external perspective on US politics in particular, and sort of a global view. And the number of people who want that sort of global perspective seems to be going up. And you just have to look at the events of the past few years to see why knowing what else is going on elsewhere in the world and not just in your own country is something you, you absolutely need to do now. So so yeah, that we we were ahead on that one. And we're in this unusual position of being based in Britain. We have about half our editorial staff in Britain. And yet the majority of our readers not being in Britain. And it's funny, if you Google the expression more like The Economist in quotes, you will find a succession of editors of Time and Newsweek saying that they are taking over and they're going to make their publication more like The Economist. But then one thing they can't do is make their economy, make their publication not be American. And uh, so this is just, it's just happened this way by chance. But, you know, one of the things I think that makes us distinctive is the fact that we are, to the majority of our readers, coming at them from a slightly different cultural perspective. Yeah, I remember, I think when I first started reading it, the, they had a British section and then a Europe section and then an America's section, which included the US and then like a rest of the world. American survey, it was called. Yeah. yeah and, and it just, exactly. it was sort of at the back. <laughs> and that was sort of where I got my American news was from this, usually a week late or so. But I mean, is there something similar between an historical perspective where you're looking at things from one step remove temporally to a sort of global perspective where you're taking a look at things kind of one step removed from the, all the stuff that's happening on the ground? Is that perspectivism similar? I, sort of. I think one of the things The Economist quite often does, because we have this global perspective, we sometimes call it the view from the moon. It means we can do a comparative approach. So a very common story in any country is, you know, our education system is in a mess or our health system is in a mess. What do we do about it? Oh, we need more money. And then we have a big argument about how we pay for it or whatever. Whereas the economist approach to covering those sorts of stories is this country is incredibly good at this thing. 
what can other countries learn from it? Or what happened when this country tried to adopt that country's approach to health or education or whatever? So that sort of comparative approach that says, we've seen this problem before, and there's analogies. Why does, for example, Israel produce so many startups? It's, I think, the second or third, it's got the second or third largest number of, of companies on the NASDAQ. So what is it about Israel? And there are lots of theories about this. And you know, other countries say, well, we want to punch above our weight in innovation like Israel does. Now, one of the reasons is that they have national service. And so that's quite difficult for other countries to copy unless they want to introduce national service. Another reason is that Israel is a small country with a small population. So in Britain, entrepreneurs dream of conquering the British market, and then they, they tend not to think any bigger than that. That's a tiny market if you're in Estonia or Israel. So you tend to get startups in Israel that are Tel Aviv and Palo Alto from day one. And so, so there is inherently international. So I think these sorts of comparative approaches are something that we do. And that's what I do with history as well, because I'm trying to do pattern matching across time rather than across space. And there are lots of historical approaches to doing that, where you can compare the rise and fall of empires, or you can compare different things that happen in different places or in different times and say, what's similar, what's different, what does that tell us? So it is that kind of comparative pattern matching approach. And I think there is a certain amount of, my history is quite journalistic. I'm not a historian by training, I'm an engineer. And my daughter, who's a, just done a master's in classics, she derides things that I write. She'll say, that's a journalistic flourish. Because in journalism, our job is to simplify, then exaggerate, as a former editor of The Economist once put it. And, and I think I'm doing a certain amount of that. It, my history is, it's not going to go into all of the nuances and details that a historical monograph is going to go into. But what I'm trying to do is find the broader shapes, the bigger picture. And that's what we're doing in journalism. And that's what I'm trying to do in history as well. Well, I guess one of the questions would be, can journalists see things that professional historians can't see? When I was reading The Edible History of Humanity again recently, it actually made me think of Fernand Braudel. And I don't know if anybody's ever made that comparison <laughs> between you and Fernand Braudel, but I... Oh, no, I've read, I used it. I read, no, exactly. No, I've read, I don't think they have, but obviously I read, I read his, some of his works when I was researching my books. And I think that whole question, people say that specialism in academia means that people know more and more about less and less. And journalists, by their nature, generally have to be generalists, I think. There are journalists who spend, I mean, I've spent most of my career actually focusing on tech, but, and I have some colleagues who are experts on Russia or China or whatever. But particularly at The Economist, we do more than other publications, we do stir the pot and we move people from subjects that they know a lot about to subjects they know nothing about. And we sort of parachute them in and say, look, you're a smart person. Your questions will be dumb for the first week and then they'll get smarter. But also, actually, there are no dumb questions because when you come into a field for the first time and you go, well, hang on a minute, why is this happening? What's going on over there? Why is this? I mean, I you know, parachuted in to cover telecoms in 2000. And so I was like immediately, well, hang on, why, is, why are Europeans doing text messaging and Americans aren't? And why has everyone just spent so much money on 3G licenses? And why? So just basic, when you arrive at a new sort of environment like that, you ask different questions. So I think journalism is structured very differently from history and from academia because it's not generally about learning more and more about a thing. It's generally being able to pick things up quickly and so forth. And there's been a really recent example of this or an example that's come to the fore recently. So we have quite a lot of people on the staff who are computer scientists and we've all been doing the AI coverage in the last few years. And I've enjoyed writing about AI, coming back to the subject that I studied at university all those years ago, and now it works. And all the things that, you know, what's changed, what hasn't, and et cetera. I find it fascinating. And I like, I've been doing some coding again recently. And one of the interesting things that we came across in our reporting on AI, and this sort of also goes, connects up with my obsession with forecasting the future, 
So we have a relationship with the super forecasting crowd. So that's Philip Tetlock. And he had this crack team of geopolitical forecasters and they, the US government had this competition to see who could do geopolitical forecasting. And the super forecasters won by an enormous margin. They beat all the academics and all of the think tanks and all of the consultancies. And so, the, but, the, but then they thought, well, this could have been a fluke. Let's do it again. So they did it again the following year. The super forecasters won again by a huge margin. So at that point, the government said, okay, we'll just, we'll fund you guys because you seem to be, you seem to know what you're doing. And they do a handful of forecasts for us each year that go into the world ahead. But the interesting thing about super forecasting is this idea that there are some people who are very good at um, coming to a subject, even if they don't know very much about it, and they're very good at setting aside their biases and their preconceptions. And that's really what the skill of a forecaster is. Because sometimes you can know too much about something and you can be too invested in a particular viewpoint on something, and that makes it hard to change your mind. And this is particularly relevant right now because of the argument about existential risk in AI. So the weird thing is that people who work on AI, and it turns out it's not just AI, in people who work in any field are much more likely to say that big changes, whether good or bad, are likely to big world-changing things that are going to happen in that field than super forecasters are. And this is not surprising. If I mean, this happens if you're in the military, if you work in the car industry. If you're asked to say, what's the probability that this big thing will happen? And it doesn't matter if it's a good or a bad thing. It's just a big thing. You're always going to overestimate the likelihood that the field you have devoted your life to will change the world. And in the case of existential risk, you then get a lot of AI people who say, yes, we think the risk of AI destroying humanity is 10% by the end of this century or something like that. And then if you ask the super forecasters, who, by the way, have a much, you know, they have a, they have a scored track record on how good they are at these sorts of things. They put it at you know about a tenth of that level. And it's not just AI. They've seen this across the board. Whenever they're brought in to validate predictions about an industry or a field or whatever, they always say, no, this is much less likely to happen. And then the experts say, but we're the experts in this field. We know about this. And the super forecasters are like, fine, let's see what happens. And when you then score, you know, you do a whole bunch of forecasts about things that you know, are going to happen in the next year or two, whatever. When you score people, you find that the super forecasters, the generalists, the people who are good at setting aside their cognitive biases are much better at it. And so that, I think, is one of the things that has been happening. And I think that probably means that journalists are the right kind of people to do super forecasting. In fact, we did a, we did a half-day course with the super forecasters. I got a small team of people internally because I wanted to just try doing it myself. And they make you do this aptitude test. And they said that we, had a, a, we scored as a team as, high, as highly as anyone ha ever had on that test. So I think that kind of generalizing about things and not knowing so much that you can't change your mind is exactly what journalists should be doing. And that probably means that journalists aren't in a terrible position. They're in as good a position as anyone else to predict what's going to happen. Well, you know, all my students say that they want to change the world. And so I guess now I have to disillusion and tell them they're not going to change. That's fine. They can. It's just when they say, when you say, what's the probability that this thing will change the world, then then you should bear in mind that when you devote your time to something, if you ask people in the car industry, you know, how if people working on self-driving cars will give you a much, much more optimistic number for how quickly they're going to work than impartial experts who just look at it and go, yeah, it's going to take longer than that. Well, it's interesting. I mean, what you're describing is the journalistic sensibility because it's very similar to what it is that I'm trying to inculcate in my MBA classroom, right? So, you know, I tell my students over and over again, there's no such thing as a stupid question. And I even award stupidest question award to folks and get them to overcome this idea that they have to be the smartest person in the room. And I think, you know, among academics, 
we academics, we get very embarrassed if we're sitting amongst our peers and we don't know something. And so MBAs, they have to cultivate this pride in being the ignorant one in the room. And I think this is, if you think about the folks who go to work for McKinsey and Bain and so forth, obviously they may be overconfident and so forth, but having this ability to just be parachuted down into an industry and to ask the right questions so that you can size up the situation, that to me is the ideal with respect to what we're trying to produce in MBAs, where I always say that they get a PhD in common sense, right? And the, the generalists basically are the bosses of the specialists. And I think that's true in business, but it's not true in, say, in medicine. And there's lots of fields where the specialists have m more prestige. Do we need to rearrange how we assign prestige to these different forms of knowledge and inquiry? Um, that's a good question. And we grapple with this at The Economist because for a long time, we've hired basically people we think, uh, even if they're specialists, the people we think can be turned into generalists. And one of the questions we've asked ourselves is whether that's correct. And actually, if when we're increasing our coverage of China, do we just want to hire more and more China specialists because learning Chinese is really hard? And so isn't that the kind of thing where our historical approach might not be the right one? So we do, we ask ourselves this question. I think actually you want a mixture of people, some of whom are extreme specialists and some of whom are extreme generalists. Where that fits in with management, a classic problem is that when you're good at thing X, you get put in charge of people doing thing X. And being good at thing X is not the same as being able to manage, let alone manage people doing thing X. And journalism, like many other businesses, we don't really get training in management. And in journalism, if you're good at it, you get made into an editor and then you're editing other people's stuff. And one of the good things about The Economist, again, something quite unusual, is that nearly everybody is both a writer and an editor. And so we don't have the sort of division between those two groups that you see at a lot of American publications, for example, where the writers wish they had the power of the editors and the editors wish they had the freedom of the writers. And at The Economist, we have a very flat organization and we all stand in for each other quite often. And we all write and we all edit and every piece gets passed around to lots of people for comments. And so we kind of avoid that problem to a certain extent, I think. But yeah, in medicine, you do want for a certain kind of heart surgery, of course, you want the specialist who's done hundreds of those kinds of operations and you don't want the generalist who's tried all sorts of, of different things. So it really does depend on the field, doesn't it? And then there's the broader question about whether academia is, by making people be more and more specialized, is that actually useful? And are we ending up with people who say, well, my doctorate is in this aspect of the history of the French Revolution between these two years. And, it, and there is a sort of active debate about whether we're going too far down these rabbit holes. But I love this stuff. And going down rabbit holes as a tourist, as it were, is what I like to do. So when other people have drilled the rabbit holes, that's fine with me. As long as you leave the ladder in there so you can get back out and <laughs> see what's going on outside of it. But Economist has, I think, is known for it having no mastheads or very few mastheads. Is that the proper term for the name of the... Well, it's bylines. It's bylines. Yeah. Bylines. Yeah. So we have bylines in a very few situations. So we have them. If you write a special report, which is a 10-page piece in the middle of the paper on a single topic, you get a byline for that. And then for the annual, which I edit, we have bylines in that because we also have external contributors. So we have guest writers and we, in the past, we've had writers from other publications and so on. So, and then we're also, the anonymity is sort of fraying around the edges in a few other places as well. We're not anonymous in our podcasts or in our videos, but we think that's quite useful because we think it's useful to sort of, you know, show people behind the scenes. We know that economist readers like seeing behind the scenes. So we get to have our cake and eat it because the anonymity means that we feel we are all collectively responsible for every piece. 
And if I'm at a publication with bylines and I see the guy on the desk next to me who, you know, I want to get promoted over him, he's making a big mistake, but it doesn't matter because it's going out on his byline. So let him make the mistake. And then he'll look like an idiot. And then I get the promotion. At The Economist, no bylines means that we all feel much more of a sense of responsibility that every piece that that we see and we touch needs to be as good as we can make it by the deadline. So that, I think, is great. The other thing is that historically, most newspapers didn't have bylines. You got a byline as a reward for a very good piece. And there's just been rampant byline inflation in the last few decades. And so, you know, I think it's so much a part of the brand of The Economist now, the anonymity, that, that it's not going to, that's not going to change. But yeah, there are places around the edge on social media, on, on podcasts and videos where you can see who is actually operating things behind the scenes. But by creating that distinctive style, it means that we can now ask that all of the things we write be written in the style of The Economist using ChatGPT, which is hopefully you guys are not, not doing that, right? You're not using ChatGPT to write. The- well, funnily enough, we have been experimenting. We've been no, we're not using it to write, but we've been experimenting with language models. And one of the language model experiments that we've been doing is on the style. So you basically train the system, you fine tune it using the style and using a whole load of Economist articles, and then you give it a piece that's not in the style and say what's wrong with it, and it'll say too much use of the passive voice, and you've done this, and you've used that word, and there's too many long words, and this sentence is too long. And so we're experimenting with whether that's a way of helping people come up to speed with learning the style. Because originally, The Economist was written all by one person, James Wilson, who founded it in 1843, wrote the whole thing. But because he didn't have a byline, you couldn't tell it was all one person. So the anonymity allowed one person to appear to be many. And today, the anonymity allows many people to appear to be one because the copy is all edited into this very specific style. And once you learn the style, you're copy doesn't get changed very much and it's you can hit the target and it just sails through editing and it's all fine but when you're first learning and when i started you know 25 years ago i learned the style because the page proofs the paper page proofs that of my articles would go through various editors who would scribble on it and i would see what they were changing because they had scribbled on the page when you do everything on the screen like we do now you, the changes people have made are invisible and so you don't have that sort of natural learning process of, oh, there's a dangling modifier. Remember that when I wrote my first book, it was, it was full of dangling modifiers. And the editor, she'd drawn a line around every single one and wrote, is dangler in the margin in pencil. And so I learned what a dangling modifier was, but I've not done them since. And I've also become very sensitized to seeing them everywhere. And they are everywhere. So that use of language models, I think, is that's something that we're exploring, which is can we use them to make it easier for people to learn the style when they first join us? So this would be like auto-tune, right, for writing, essentially. Yes, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Well, except auto-tune kind of has an aesthetic all of its own, which I have to say I'm not a big fan of. But, but, you know, that's the. it's not just correcting the fact that the pitch is off. It's also making it sound that way that some people like. So I suppose the equivalent of that would be a sort of parody economist style, where everything is the need for structural reform all the time. Well, you know, but in Writing on the Wall, you talk about the rise and fall of this sort of centralized media model. And it would be an exaggeration to say that the centralized media model is dead, given the power that the platforms have to channel different pieces to different people. But the idea, I mean, there's been quite a bit of panic in journalism circles around the you know, pursuit of clicks and the pursuit of attention and the concern that this sort of detached and objective media model with professional journalists is on the decline. Is that also excessive in terms of its panic mongering? Certainly the subjective impression that we get is that yellow journalism's on the rise. Yeah, yeah. the line I've always taken on this is that sort of click-driven internet journalism was never a good business model in the first place. And it's only got worse since. So 
I've been making that case for quite a long time. The problem with the click-driven journalism is that you just give people more of what they clicked on before. And we're in an unusual position. The Economist has always got most of its revenue from subscriptions. We have quite a high subscription price because basically we have people who don't have much time but have enough money. They pay us to save them time. And getting up to speed quickly on what's happening in the world is the service we provide to our readers, and they pay us money for that information directly. And there isn't an intermediary. There are tech platforms and advertisers and clicks in the middle. But the other thing they're paying us to do is to curate what's happened, tell them what's important. And very often that's something like, have you noticed what's happened to the economy of Venezuela? That's not something, that's not a very clickbaity subject, but you know, essentially that responsibility we have to our readers, which is tell you what's important that you didn't know you needed to know about, you're never going to get that with a click-driven model. With a click-driven model, you say, well, look, everyone's clicking on pictures, uh, on articles about Elon Musk, electric cars, China, what time is the Super Bowl? And we're just going to do more of that. And if we just did more of what people had clicked on before, then we wouldn't be doing our job from our perspective. So we've never had a sort of click-driven click model. And I've always said, well, the problem with a click-driven model is firstly, it distorts those sort of journalistic incentives. But then the other problem with it is just that even if you can make a click-driven model work, you're basically mortgaging your future to the platform that is sending you the clicks. We saw this when Facebook pivoted to video and lots of people switched to making lots of video content. And the problem is that if you can make money doing that, then at any point, the platform in the middle can say, well, actually, we've decided to change the terms and now we're going to have a bit more of that money and you can't do anything about it. And we've seen this happen so many times. And I've been quite gloomy about the prospects for ad-supported internet media for quite a long time. And this year, we've sadly seen BuzzFeed News go under and Vice go bankrupt. And I think both of them have actually done some very good journalism. But ultimately, that business model of you live and die by how many clicks you get is not, a, I don't think, a sustainable business model. Because even if you can make it sustainable, then as soon as you start making money, someone will come along and say, I'll have that. But that said, I'm also, I also find, and I've stopped going to future of journalism, future of media conferences, because they always end up in the same discussion, which is we used to get all this money from advertising. So the peak was 2008, 87% of American publications revenue came from advertising. That was the peak in 2008. And since then, it, all that advertising money has gone to Facebook and Google. That money is rightfully ours. We have a God-given you know, right to have that money. And, to, and therefore, they should compensate us for taking away our business model. Now, this is absolutely ridiculous. If you can't apply this kind of logic, this profit is rightfully mine. And how dare you take it away? That's just nonsense. So I don't buy it. And we see these very weird, convoluted attempts to tax tech companies and give the money to media companies. And there's this example going on in Canada right now, where there's this ridiculous law that if you are a big tech company defined in such a way that it means Facebook or Google, and you publish a link to some websites, but defined in such a way that it's basically news outlets, then you need to pay them. And the law has to tie itself in so many knots. I think in Australia they have. Yeah, they tried it in Australia too, exactly. Right. And, and in fact, this sort of thing, charging the, the tech platforms to link to the news companies, and they tried this in Spain, and Google just shut down Google News in Spain because it just said, this is stupid, we're not going to do it. And then the publishers were all like, oh no, well, our traffic's gone away. This is terrible. <laughs> well, of course it did, because they were net beneficiaries from Google. So, so I just, it drives me absolutely nuts. And if you want to subsidize the media, and you want to subsidize it by taxing tech companies, then fine, impose a tax on tech companies and then separately introduce a subsidy for the media. But this kind of 
linkage between the two that the tech companies are responsible for the sad state of the of the news industry which has a sort of god-given right to a certain amount of profit just because it used to have that profit for a, a few decades there this is crazy thinking really it's like electric cars have come along and therefore no one wants to buy petrol cars anymore so we need to tax electric car companies and give the money to the the companies that make the petrol cars this is it's nonsense so I'm just very frustrated by this. And for years, when I did go to those sorts of conferences about the future of news and everything, eventually someone would get up and say, well, the real problem is that Google and Facebook have taken all our profits. So what we really need to do is, et cetera, they need to write us a check, basically. And at that point, I would just want to leave the room. So and on several occasions, did. So yes, I'm. Ah, that drives me nuts. Well, forgive me if I do ask you a question about the future of media, because it seems like, you know, with the more hackers you have, the more demand there is for cybersecurity. And so the more deep fakes and so forth that we're going to see, presumably the more demand there will be for credibility and for curation. So is this going to be sort of a, you know, a winner take all sort of market? Because credibility is something that's pretty hard to achieve. It's hard to achieve, easy to lose. So we have seen that dynamic. Yeah, no, we've seen that dynamic in other markets. So famously, food brands first emerged in the sort of 18th, 19th century because of concern about contamination. And we basically have a very noisy and contaminated, polluted news environment now. So I think there is certainly a sort of a prospect of a flight to quality. And that means trusted media brands that could include subscription-based media brands like the New York Times and The Economist, but it could also mean state-funded media like the BBC. So I think that there is a sort of optimistic view there. There are questions about equity. So, you know, The Guardian has this interesting model where it's basically donation-funded and that way they can keep their information free to everyone. I didn't think that was going to work when they launched it. I wanted to be proved wrong. And I'm very happy to say that I have been. And I myself subscribe to The Guardian voluntarily. I could read it all for free, but I actually give them, you know, I give them their £56 a year or whatever it is, because I think it's the right thing to do. So, but there is this question of if everything becomes a subscription paywalled media, then what does that mean for the role of media in democracy? So I think there's a real problem there. But just going back to the, the writing on the wall thesis. So my thesis about media is that most media was social media. So people got news from friends, acquaintances, gossip in the marketplace going back thousands of years. And I think that that sort of widespread exchange of information on a large scale in written form starts with the Romans and the letters of people like Cicero. And they're, you can see in Cicero's letters, because we have basically his inbox and his outbox, you can see that they're all copying letters to each other. And weirdly, my daughter is doing a, an email version of this, publishing the letters of Cicero on the days that he sent or received them on the day of the year that he sent to receive them. And she's some, somewhere in 45 BC right now, I think. Or was it 44 BC? It's after the assassination of Caesar. So anyway, but the point is that back in the day, you knew that information might be unreliable. You were just getting it from people. And then what happens in the 19th century is that new technologies that can disseminate information in really large quantities become available. First, we get the steam press and you get the first newspapers with more than a million circulation. And then you get radio. And then you get TV. And of course, initially, radio and TV are analog technologies and you have limited bandwidth. So, you know, I grew up in Britain with three TV channels when I was young. And I remember when the fourth one launched, what a big deal it was. And the thing is that when you have a limited, when you have access to one of those channels, it basically is in your interest to make sure that the information you publish is accurate because you want to preserve the integrity of your brand. And if you own one of the few, a handful of brands and you have part of this oligopoly of information, then, you know, you don't want to contaminate that. And so there was a sort of self-reinforcing mechanism to try and be accurate and try and not get things wrong. And I think for the most part, when I was growing up, the stuff we saw on telly and the stuff you read in the papers was mostly right. 
because it was expensive to publish it in the first place. So just making stuff up and publishing it was not a very good business model. And what's happened now... It was, it was really an industrial organization story, right? Yes, no, absolutely. If you go and see a printing press, I mean, it is, you know, one of the things that we make journalists do when they join The Economist is go and see the printing press because we want to just, we want you to see what the consequences are when we have to stop the presses to fix a mistake. It's like a massive, massive thing. But anyway, so you, we have this period which I call the mass media parenthesis, and it runs from sort of 1850 or so to about 2000. And then the internet makes publishing free again, and you have infinite numbers of digital channels and so forth. And so we've gone back to, this is the thesis of, of the Writing on the Wall book, we've gone back to a world where you get information from all sorts of people, some of whom are unreliable or actively trying to mislead you, which was the case for most of history. So it's not that it's not like we haven't seen this before. And there have been debates about this for a very long time, about whether it's sensible to have a free press. You know, During the English Civil War, there was this explosion of publishing in 1642 because the authority of the king collapsed. And that was the origin of many aspects of the modern free speech debate. Is it better to let people publish things even if they're wrong? Let truth and falsehood grapple, Milton, you know, all of this kind of stuff. So that, that we've returned to that world. And I, my sort of way of thinking about this is I don't think this isn't an engineering problem. You can't fix disinformation, I don't think. I think what you have to do is you have to just go, we have to switch our mindset back to the default is that you can't trust anything that you read or see or watch. You have to just, like back in the day, everything could just be made up and wrong. And you have to ask what the provenance of everything you see is. And one of the nice things about getting information directly from Netflix or directly from the New York Times or directly from The Economist is you're getting it straight onto your screen from their app. There is no platform in the middle. There are no Russians in the middle. There are no intermediaries, algorithms. And so I think getting information in that direct way, directly from someone who you pay and who you trust, is something that we're likely to see more of. And swimming in the seas of misinformation is something we'll go and do sometimes, but we'll do it very aware it's like swimming in a polluted sea with all sorts of dodgy things floating around and sharks and sewage and things like that. So, you know, as long as you are aware of the dangers and as long as you are thinking about the provenance of things, then you can do that. But then you need the skills to be aware of those dangers. So I think that's the kind of mindset shift that we need to go through that we haven't gone through. Now, I think it was Reid Hoffman who said we have a tendency to overestimate the amount of change that's going to happen in the next 10 years, but then we underestimate how much is going to happen in the next 20 years or something like that. I can't remember exactly what the... It's quite a common... I've heard various versions of that. Bill Gates has said it too. But yes, we underestimate, we overestimate change in the short term and underestimate it in the long term. So we think that everything's going to happen tomorrow. And actually, ChatGPT is not going to take everyone's jobs tomorrow. But you know, AI is going to have a big impact over the next 10 years. And it's much harder to see what that's going to be. So instead, we fixate on the, oh my God, we're all going to be out of a job tomorrow because of this. And so we end up being wrong on, on both dimensions. Well, maybe we can switch and talk about this book on motion. I mean, we tend to say, oh, you know, level five autonomy is right around the corner. I know Elon Musk has been saying this, but I remember in 2006, my house burned down and all my CDs were damaged by the water that came in. So my, you know, the CDs were intact, but the little wrapper was destroyed. Oh, the slip cases. Yeah, they're all moldy and stuff. And so I was like, what am I going to do? And I had 4,000 CDs. So everyone was like, oh, you should upload them into a hard drive and then you can access them through your iTunes and everything. And there's a company that if you send them off for a dollar a piece, they'll like upload them for you and everything. And I said, ah, oh, no, we're going to have streaming like any day. I'll be able to stream this stuff. And here it is. I don't know how many years later, 15 years later. And we still most, a lot of that music is still not available for streaming. And, you know, it was only just this year. Really? That, I think it, okay. Well, I mean, it's only just this year that Apple introduced classical, right? Apple classical, which doesn't 
treat a movement like a song and so forth? No, well, they, they had classical before. They had classical before. The problem is that all the streaming services are set up for pop music. I speak as the son of a classical violinist. And so they're like, like artist, track name, album name. That's the way it works. And so composer is not there. And then the idea that there are multiple versions of the Four Seasons or Rack 2. So all Apple Classical is, is basically a better interface for, you know, that stuff is there, but it was just hard to find. But yeah, no, I think those sorts of changes, we forget, I'm constantly struck by this, that the friction that used to be in life with, for example, getting lost having maps. I remember when we used to drive to Europe in the summer, we'd have all these map books. And, and the first year we had a sat-nav. Oh yeah, big Michelin maps. Yeah, exactly. And the first year we had a sat-nav was an absolute revelation because we could just dial in where we wanted to go and it would say how long. And then we'd go, oh, actually, we'd like to go to this place on the way. And we'd just have to stop and, and we wouldn't get lost. And it was just like amazing. And now we can't imagine a world where that would happen. And then similarly, so I'm constantly thinking, what are the kinds of friction? So similarly with music, you, could, you, you used to have to buy albums without having heard now you can just listen to everything and you can just say, well, I've never really known about the music of this band, so I'm just going to go and listen to all their albums. It's wonderful. I absolutely love it. So that's another source of friction that's gone away. Commuting, we didn't realize that was a source of friction, but it turns out we don't have to do that anymore, or at least some of us don't have to do it quite so much anymore. So we get time back from that. So I'm constantly looking for what are the things that we're doing now that are sources of friction that are going to go away? And I'm constantly thinking about those as ways that the world might change. Well, I mean, in the book, you show how there were frictions for the adoption of the automobile. And we see those frictions today for the adoption of autonomy and EVs, but it's often not where you think it is, right? So the problem right now is presumably not the development of ever more sophisticated machine learning algorithms for recognizing what's happening in the environment, because maybe the friction is how do we adjust the environment so that it's easier for them to understand by building ring-fenced areas, or the friction has to do with the legal resistance, and we need to make sure that it's a thousand times safer before you know we're willing to allow it to operate, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's very much that approach of make the environment friendlier to the autonomous cars is very much what's happening in China. But I should say this book is is only tangentially about autonomous cars. It's really about the fact that I mean, it's a whole history. Of, it starts literally with the wheel, but then it's really about the rise of the car and how the car bent the world out of shape, and and how that didn't really that kind of happened by accident. And in some cases, because of lobbying by the car industry. But it's a sort of parable of technological adoption. And in particular, the kind of recurring theme is this idea of path dependency, which is once you start doing something, it's very, very hard to switch to doing something else. And we kind of had this path dependency with horses. And the book starts with this analogy between the present day and the 1890s, because in the 1890s, there was this big problem with the transport, the dominant form of urban transport was completely environmentally unsustainable. And it was because of horses and horse manure Horse manure was everywhere, but also the horse intensity of big cities like London and New York was going up. So the number of horses per capita was increasing every year. And you'd have thought that introducing trains would help, but actually trains made it worse because the more people you've got coming in and out of a city on a train, the more you need horse-borne transport to move the people and the goods for the last mile. And so this was something that people were recognizing in the 1880s and 1890s. And there are all these fights where you know, women are campaigning against the horse manure dumps in their neighborhoods, which stink and there's flies and they're worried about the health impact. And it's terrible. And the streets are just like open sewers and it's just completely disgusting. And then the car comes along and everyone is like, oh, this is going to fix everything. Cars are going to take up less space on the road because, you know, a horse and a carriage is like this and a car takes up half as much space. So that means we're going to have twice as much road space and therefore traffic will stop being a problem because traffic was a massive, massive problem as well. Horses were getting in the way of trams and all the rest of it. And then it was going to solve, you know, there wouldn't be car crashes anymore. There wouldn't be accidents because horses can bolt. They can run away. They can kick you. 
Cars are completely predictable, so that's going to not be a problem. And then this pollution problem will go away as well because cars don't poo. And of course, cars do poo. They poo carbon dioxide. And it turns out we were wrong on all counts. You didn't park horses on the street, but people started parking cars on the street and that became normal. And then we just ended up building these dormitories for cars that we call cities. And, you know, the amount of parking in America is 40% of big US cities is parking and all this kind of stuff. So there are all these sort of unintended consequences from what looked like a silver bullet. And what I'm saying is here we are again, and we're saying, well, electrifying cars is, you know, that's a similar analogy because the horseless carriage was like, it's just the same. You just take away the horse. Everything else will be the same or better. And actually electric cars are kind of a different beast because they're computers on wheels and they have all sorts of implications. And then if you can make them autonomous as well, and that's the, the a lot of the same silver bullet arguments are being advanced about autonomous cars, that they're going to get rid of pollution, they're going to get rid of traffic, they're going to get rid of accidents. And maybe they will, but the lesson of history is they probably won't. And even if they do, there will be other unintended consequences, like the fact that cars are basically moving camera platforms. And so it's a massive surveillance system. <laughs> the first thing that's going to happen in the future when the crime is committed is the police are going to ask nearby cars what they saw and this kind of thing. So there's a sort of data exhaust problem that might catch us out. So I'm really telling the parable of how the car ended up being quite so influential as a technology in the 20th century and saying that these apparently inconsequential choices that were made along the way that then fossilized into this enormous car infrastructure, we have to be very careful that we don't go and fall into the same sorts of traps again as we redesign our transport architecture now. And that's not just AVs, it's using Uber or ride-hailing in general, it's electric vehicles, it's bikes, it's what can we do about road safety. We can rethink the architecture of cities because we don't have to have cars as the main, you know, roads don't just have to be things for cars to drive on. And we saw a lot of this in the pandemic where we had pedestrianised streets and a lot of cities have left you know, they added bike lanes, they've left areas pedestrianised. And it turns out you can have a much better quality of life if you have fewer cars. Obviously, you need to have decent public transport to make this work, which is a problem in a lot of America. But in, in much of Europe, city centres have been pedestrianised and it's fantastic. So I'm really kind of looking at that whole complex of sort of interaction. And this is going back to the start. Essentially, what I'm interested in is the social impact of technology. And food is technology, cars are a technology, and media is a technology. And it's all the same joke over and over again, which is how people react to things and what can we learn from the way people reacted in the past so that we don't make the same mistakes in the future. Well, I mean, the lesson I got from the book on motion was really, it's an argument against ceteris paribus thinking, right? So this is what we as economists, we're always like, okay, let's take this one variable in isolation and, you know, see what happens if we change it. And the expectation is that everything else will stay the same and this one thing will change, right? So for instance, yeah, if we have autonomous vehicles, well, then we'll have less traffic. And you talk about, there's this one experiment, right? Where people were given access to a fake autonomous vehicle, like a chauffeur driven car. And then they start using it like all the time. And, and, you know, it's funny because I now have a job at Stanford and it, if I had to drive there, I mean, I would seriously consider moving because I live in Berkeley, but now that I take Uber every day, you know, when I go down, I'm not even thinking about moving because so, I, my, my belief is I hate commuting. I like walking to work, but if I get somebody chauffeuring me, you know, it's not that much, really, it's not that bad. It's not that inconvenient. I can read my books and so forth in the car. And so, no, that experiment was hilarious. I was, and it was also in California. I can't remember which university did it, but, but yes, it's a version of the lump of labor fallacy, which is that there's a lump of transport. And uh, if you automate the cars, then it, everything stays the same. It's just, there are no drivers. And we know this is wrong. But yeah, that experiment, they basically gave people in San Francisco, I think, they gave them a 24-hour chauffeured car 
And they said, you can just get into it and say, I want to go to here and we'll see what happens. And the idea was to explore the idea of induced demand, which is when you've got a car that can drive you, you're going to start using it in a different way. For example, you might say, well, I want to go to that, you know, that town over there that's five hours away. I'm just going to tell my car to go there and sleep in the car. And if you could do that, you're probably going to travel more. And if you can send your car to pick up your kid from school and then come back again and you don't have to go, that's really convenient. So you might do that more often than if you actually had to drive yourself and it took time out of your day. So there's this idea of induced demand and we, that we have. We're used to this. If you build a road, people look at an empty road and go, well, look at an empty road, I'll drive on that. So the more roads you build, the more traffic you get. And the version of this with autonomous vehicles is that if you make autonomous vehicles, then people might actually travel a lot more than they travel now. And so this experiment found exactly that, which is that in particular, if you want to go to wine country, that's an hour and a half, two hours north of San Francisco, and then you're going to drink a whole load of wine. You're not going to be in a state to come home. But if you've got a car that can drive itself, you're going to do that every Sunday, right? You're going to go, right, off we go to wine country, take me to all these wineries. Yes, I'm going to get completely hammered. And then I'm going to sleep in the car on the way home. And so they found that the number of miles that people drove or traveled when they had these, in effect, self-driving vehicles went up by a factor of seven or something. It was absolutely terrifying. So again, that was evidence against the, you know, autonomous cars will get rid of traffic because actually they could massively increase it because people would, would send, you know, I'm going to send my car to pick something up for me from a shop. And I'd never bother to, I wouldn't do that myself if I was driving, but, you know, if my car can do it itself. So there are all these extra use cases that we need to be aware of. And then the other musing, I think, sort of thread that runs through the book is the idea that you are what you drive. And this is very ancient. And we have pictures of Egyptian pharaohs on their war chariots because the war chariot was like the coolest vehicle in the world when it was invented. And then what happens is that after about around the kind of Battle of Gorgomila, so Alexander the Great, 4th century BC, and Alexander's cavalry completely destroys the Persians who are using chariots. And then chariots start to become, they're basically regarded as women's vehicles, wheeled vehicles. And in the Roman period, men go around on horses and women go in wheeled vehicles. And then by the sort of Middle Ages, we get the uh, the knight on horseback and the princess in the carriage. And this is very much, you know, it was regarded as extremely unmanly to be seen in a vehicle, in a wheeled vehicle. It was all right for servants to go in them, but, you know, real men rode horses. And then it all changes again when gunpowder weapons are invented and suddenly you can shoot the people on the horses, but you can mount the gunpowder weapons on the back of carriages and then suddenly things with wheels are cool again. And so there's this complete flip in the 16th century and suddenly being able to drive a, a coach and horses very, very fast becomes manly again. So there's this sort of constant seesawing of you are defined by your vehicle, whether it's got wheels or whether it's a horse or whatever. And that's something we take for granted today. It's interesting to see that starting to decline. You know, younger people seem to be driving less. And in some big cities, places like Tokyo, where it's a total nightmare to have a car, the smartphone became the kind of defining social technology a long time ago. But we're seeing that happen in the West. And a smartphone is very much a substitute for a car because you can use it to call up you know, transport. You can use it as a travel pass. You can go shopping through your phone instead of having to go to the mall. You can make food appear through your phone instead of having to you know, drive somewhere. And so I would like to think that sort of finally puts a skewer in the idea that you're defined by what kind of car you have. But you know, old habits die hard. And that's a very, very old habit. Yeah. When you made that comparison between the kind of car status symbol and the phone status symbol, it reminded me of, I teach this case in my strategy class about Coca-Cola. And of course, in your book on the beverages, you got a whole chapter on Coca-Cola. And I used to teach the class as the substitute that was supplanting Coca-Cola was bottled water in the same way in your book, you talk about bottled water. But then I, recently it occurred to me and I was talking to the head of marketing for Coke, who was a former student of mine. And he said, no, no, no. The biggest competitor to Coke is the iPhone. And that Coke used to be hydration plus coolness. 
And now the coolness comes from the phone, not just in the US, but of course all around the developing world, right? The first thing you did when the wall fell is, you know, you go get a Coke. And now, of course, the first thing you do when you get any kind of prosperity is you buy the phone. And so the decline of Coca-Cola as a beverage is really tied to the rise of the smartphone. And that, that had never occurred to me. And now, of course, I teach that in my class. And I think the, look, the main sort of lesson that I get from all of your books is this idea of, it's a type of humility, I think, that you're trying to cultivate in the reader. This humility around forecasting and this humility around consequences of shocks and, and interventions. And it is very similar to what you get when you read a lot of Phil Tetlock, right? It's this idea that maybe we should be prepared to be surprised. Yeah, no, I think that's reasonable. And I think you can prepare yourself to be surprised by seeing how people were surprised in the past. So when the Telegraph first started operating and people said, oh my God, it's black magic. But then at the same time, the operators were like, we're bored, let's play chess. So they start playing chess, you know, down the line. And these were surprising uses of, of the technology. So yeah, I think that's a reasonable way of looking at it. And I think one of the ways you can prepare for the surprises of the future is to sort of think and look closely at how people were taken by surprise in the past and then try not to get too caught out. And so everybody thought that the biggest impact of Columbus would be gold, and it turned out to be the potato, right? And I'm grateful for that. A whole load of things. I mean, yeah, we, lots of things. Yeah, exactly. Well, Tom, thanks so much for joining me. It's great. The latest book here is called A Brief History of Motion. Check it out. But also Edible History of Humanity, Writing in the Wall, History of the World in Six Glasses, Victorian Internet, The Turk. I hope none of these go out of print because I really like all of them and hope that everybody gets a chance to read them. And they're all written in the style, which kind of sucks you through just like The Economist does every week. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. 